0: Well, you're all probably hearing a lot of Christmas music now. Maybe you're playing it in your home, you've got it on, on your radio or inside your house, you're listening to it in the car, or maybe you're not intentionally listening to it at home or in your car, but it's everywhere you go. In different stores, you hear Christmas music going. But have you ever noticed how many Christmas songs there are about Mary? I mean, there's quite a few. Uh, Mary, did you know? And of course, the answer is yes, she did know. To, to a lot of those, the answers to those questions. And then, uh, what child is this? There's another song that's a question mark at the end. What child is this? The babe, the son of Mary. You know, there's a lot of songs about Mary, and she is an amazing woman, so rightfully so. God chose her to be the mother of Jesus Christ, to give birth to the Son of God. So we give Mary honor. We give her Respect and all of those things that she deserves. She deserves some songs being sung about her, but have you ever noticed how little we sing or even talk about Joseph? He's an impressive man. We don't hear anything about him during Jesus' earthly ministry, which leads us to believe that he had passed away before that time. And he takes up a fairly small portion of Scripture in terms of what it tells us about him. So as much as we tend to think about the woman that God chose to give birth to the Son of God, have you ever stopped to think about that, that God took great care to pick out the man who, would, who was going to marry the woman who would give birth to the Son of God? Even though Joseph had no physical, biological part in the birth of Jesus, he had a huge role to play as it relates to protecting Mary and protecting their child, the child, over the course of Jesus' early years. And I'm impressed by his heart, his attitude of obedience. And this passage tells us about Joseph, and it shows us his character and the way he responds to the circumstances that he was in. And might we just all agree, he was in some extraordinary circumstances that he encountered And with Matthew, he's already established the legal connection between Joseph and Jesus. Since Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, but he was considered the father of Jesus from a human and from a legal standpoint, Matthew gave us the lineage of Joseph in the first 17 verses of the chapter. He now goes on to describe the virgin birth of Jesus. But Matthew doesn't give us a lot of detail About the birth itself, you know, Luke does a great job of that. But Matthew tells us where Jesus came from in terms of his father's lineage and the events leading up to his birth. And he tells the story through the eyes of Joseph. So we're going to look at the virgin birth of Jesus, but from a unique perspective, from Joseph's perspective. So first, our first point is the man. We're going to look at the man. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed, and that's the formal period of engagement that we would think of as engagement. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that's before they were united in marriage, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. There were essentially three steps to marriage in the Jewish world of Jesus' time. There was the engagement. This could happen when the bride and groom were quite young and often arranged by the parents. So you could be a little kid and be engaged, as it were. There was this arrangement made. Then they had the betrothal. That's what we think of as engagement. This made the previous engagement official and binding. During this time of betrothal, the couple were known as husband and wife. They would call each other husband and wife, though they weren't living together and being fully married at that point. The betrothal could be broken only by divorce, so it was legally binding, and the betrothal typically lasted a year. And then finally, there was the marriage that took place after the wedding, after that year of betrothal. So looking at these verses in the context of the whole chapter, Matthew has recorded 42 generations of natural birth, and now he inserts a supernatural birth, the virgin birth, the singular event that happened to only one person in history, and that is Jesus Christ born of a virgin. And people all over the world today celebrate or at least acknowledge Christmas. But what's sad is that there are A number of Americans who identify themselves as Christians who will say that the birth of Jesus Christ is not the most important part of Christmas. George Barna and his research group interviewed and assessed American belief systems. And of the research that they did, they found 88% of the group they researched, 88% claimed to be Christians, and only 37% of that group thought that the birth of Jesus was the most important part of Christmas. They said other things like gifts or giving and and receiving gifts about family and and love and just getting together and those kinds of things. But what makes Christmas so unique and why we should be excited about the birth of Jesus into this world, one of the things is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of a virgin as predicted by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel." That was the prediction made by Isaiah the prophet about virgin birth. Now, some people try to explain it away by saying things like, well, virgin birth happens in the world of biology and in nature. It's called parthenogenesis. And they'll point to like the honeybee, for example, uh, that the unfertilized, unfertilized egg of a honeybee can develop and does develop into a drone or a male bee. Or they'll say that certain sea urchins or marine worms, when placed in different salt solutions, those eggs begin to develop and take on different forms. Or they'll point back to what happened in 1940 when a rabbit was developed by chemical and temperature influences placed upon the ova that caused the development of that rabbit. And they'll say, well, see, that's parthenogenesis. It's, known, it's a known phenomenon in the biological world. That may be true, but not with human beings. That hasn't happened the idea of a human being born of a virgin birth, of a virgin womb, was unheard of. So much so that even after it happened, as we will see, Jesus was scorned, Mary was scorned, and there was a stigma placed upon the family. Like, yeah, right, right, yeah, it was a virgin birth. No one believes that. And later, when Jesus was confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees, they Uh, intimated this in john chapter 8 verse 41 they said we were not born of fornication we have one father god implying we were not born of fornication but you were jesus that was the implication the idea put forth by some is that mary must have had some relationship with an unnamed roman soldier in a, a garrison in galilee So it wasn't a virgin birth, but an illicit birth. But the Bible's clear. Before they came together, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. In those days, and might I say today as well, sexual purity was considered the highest possible gift a person could give to another person on their wedding day. That they had saved themselves for each other. So to be found pregnant was to be ostracized in the very least, and in the very most, she could have been stoned to death along with the man who did it. So what do we see? What does Joseph do? Verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, so they're, they're not fully married, they're in that betrothal period. Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant, and he knows he isn't the father. He can only assume another man did it, and he's heartbroken. I mean, he had to be crushed to find out that she's pregnant. But being a just man, he knew that if Mary had been unfaithful to him, it would be impossible for him to go through with the marriage. And as a just man, he also didn't want to make this an unnecessary hardship or stigma upon Mary. He wanted to do the right thing. He was a just man. That's what that means. He wants to do the right thing. He desires to obey God's word at all costs. And all of those character traits led Joseph to the difficult decision to break off the engagement and to seek a quiet divorce. In Jewish culture of that time, a betrothal was legally binding and one needed to get an official divorce to break that arrangement. Of course, we know that's not how it ended. uh, that, That didn't happen and Joseph and Mary did get married. We know Joseph is the adopted father of Jesus, but not the actual father, but he was the legal father of Jesus. But think about what an intense trial This was for a godly young woman like Mary and a godly man like Joseph. This would be the most distressing and humiliating situation for both of them to be in. All they had to stand on was their full awareness that in themselves, that they knew in their own integrity, they did what the Lord wanted them to do. That's all they had to stand on. All they had was their confidence in God that God was going to see this whole thing through. Now, this is where I want you to tune in for for a moment. If you read through the Gospels, especially Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, uh, you discover genealogies. We read Matthew's genealogy last week. Luke also has a genealogy of Jesus, but it's different. We know that Matthew's is the genealogy of Joseph because Joseph's father Jacob is mentioned, and we believe that Luke is showing the genealogy of Mary because a man named Heli is mentioned. That's Mary's dad, and that's how her genealogical record gets traced. There's also a difference in how they were written. Matthew is a descending genealogy. It descends from Abraham all the way down to Joseph. Luke is an ascending genealogy, ascending from Heli, going up. He's the father of Mary, going all the way back to David, to Abraham, and even to to Adam. But why two genealogies? Well, if you just go back and look at verse 16 there in in chapter 1, you'll notice it says, Jacob begot Joseph. So that was his father, Jacob. And notice it says, the husband of Mary. So he's not the father of Jesus, but he's shown as the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. So Joseph's genealogy provides the legal authority for Jesus to be on the throne of David while Luke shows not the legal authority, but the racial purity. What do I mean by that? Well, just go back a few verses more to verse 11 in chapter 1, where it says, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. I didn't go into this last week because I think it's more important to what we're talking about today, but Jeconiah was one of the kings of Judah. But something happened to Jeconiah that poses a threat to the entire uh, line of King David. His bloodline gets cursed. You read about that in Jeremiah chapter 22, if you want to go home and read that. Jeremiah 22, where we see a huge problem that cannot be solved unless there is a virgin birth. I'll, I'll go through a little bit of this with you. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. It says, As I live, says the Lord, "'Though Coniah,' that's a shortened version of Jeconiah, "'Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, "'were the signet on my right hand, "'yet I would pluck you off, "'and I will give you into the hand "'of those who seek your life, "'and into the hand of those who face you your fear, "'the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, "'and the hand of the Chaldeans. "'So I will cast you out, "'and your mother who bore you, "'into another country where you were not born, "'and there you shall die.'" But to the land to which they desire to return, they shall not return. Verse 28, Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless a man who shall not prosper in his days for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now this doesn't mean that Jeconiah didn't have any children. He had sons, but none of them succeeded him on the throne. His bloodline gets cursed here in this chapter. Now he's the king of Judah and the way it works is there's this succession from King David all the way down until we get to Jeconiah, but his bloodline is cursed. God says, none of his descendants will sit upon the throne. The problem though, especially since the Messiah has to be in the line of David, of King David, and follow that dynastic succession, God promised a descendant of King David to sit upon the throne. But here it says, well, Jeconiah is cursed, and his sons uh, never succeeded him. His uncle succeeded him because of this curse that God pronounced. So it's like, okay, so how is the Messiah, the son of David, going to qualify to be the legal and pure son of David if the bloodline is cursed? Well, that's where we come to these genealogies. Matthew shows that Jesus has the legal right to the throne of David all the way back through Jeconiah to King David, because Jeconiah was mentioned, as we read in Matthew. You're like, okay, but you said the bloodline is cursed. Exactly. Jesus Christ was not the actual son of Joseph in his bloodline. He was only the legal son, because Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Luke shows you the purity of the bloodline because Mary's genealogy bypasses Jeconiah and bypasses Solomon and and goes back to King David through a different son of David named Nathan, not Jeconiah or Solomon. So Jeconiah is out of the picture with Mary, leaving this pure, untainted bloodline. Jeconiah is in the picture with Joseph. That provides the legal right for Jesus to occupy the throne of David. But because Jesus was not the actual son of, of Joseph, he has the legal right, and he also maintains the purity of the bloodline of Mary, or from Mary. So do you understand why there's two different genealogies? Uh, and why the virgin birth is so important? God pronounces a curse on the bloodline, but he gets around that curse by providing a virgin birth, a virgin-born Messiah. So he gets around the whole thing. So he can keep his promise. That's the point. God keeps his promise. So the virgin birth was necessary for that to happen. But as we have looked at this, we've looked at this through the eyes of Joseph, who he's seeking this quiet divorce with Mary. So Joseph, the man, but now we have the messenger. We see that in verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So this angelic messenger, it could be Gabriel, who's prominent in the announcements made to Mary and to to Zacharias, but those were actual angelic visitations, This is presented to Joseph in a dream. Now, was he asleep and he had this dream? We're not sure, but the dream, it says, it came while he thought about these things. So understandably, Joseph was troubled by Mary's mysterious pregnancy and about her future and what he would do in this predicament. I mean, he's got a lot on his mind to say the least. And though he has decided to put her away secretly, he wasn't comfortable with that decision. And now this angelic messenger addresses Joseph as the son of David. That's a reference to his legal lineage to the throne of David. And to be addressed as such had to have alerted him that, hey, there's something significant about this message. What's the message? That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It appears that Mary didn't tell Joseph that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She didn't say that, nor that she told uh, him that an angel had told her all of this before she was even pregnant. Uh, Maybe she did and he didn't believe her, or she just left that out for understandable reasons because no one's going to believe that. Well, the angel continues, verse 21 And she will bring forth a son. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh, or God is salvation. It was a fairly common name in that day, but it is supremely blessed in our day. You will call his name Jesus. God is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. This description of the work of Jesus reminds us that Jesus meets us in our sin. But his purpose is to save us from our sin. He meets us where we are only to take us and to change us and deliver us from our sins. And he saves us first from the penalty of sin and then from the power of sin and finally and ultimately from the presence of sin. That will be when we go to be with him in glory. So all this was done, verse 22. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now he says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled. This is the first time that that phrase is used that will become this familiar theme throughout the gospel of Matthew. And here we get the quote from Isaiah, the prophet, there in verse 23. Behold the virgin, shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Emmanuel. This is a description or a title of Jesus. And it refers to both his deity, that it's God with us. It's also his identification and about his nearness to man. It's God with us. It is God and he is with us. Just think about all that that means. God with us. It shows how low that God bent down to save man, that he became one of us. He added the nature of one of his own creatures to save his own, uh, to save uh, into his own divine nature. He added that nature, accepting the, our weaknesses, our failures, and our, our dependency that we would experience as human beings. He lowered himself to become one of us. It shows what a great miracle it is that God could add a human nature to his own and still remain God. It also shows the compatibility between unfallen human nature and the divine nature, that the two could be joined uh, together to show that we are truly made in his image, and it shows that we can come to him we can go to God. If he has come to us, then we can come to him. Emmanuel, God with us. How does it happen? Well, by a virgin. That's what it says. Now, this prophecy by Isaiah was given 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, let me tell you about just how that happened, because if you go home and read this in, in Isaiah, it's rather confusing. You'll be like, what's going on here? Here's how it came about. The king at that time was named King Ahaz, and he was a very wicked king. His dad was a good king, Josiah. Uh, he was a righteous king who reigned for 52 years in Judah, but then his son Ahaz takes over. Ahaz uh, was wicked. He brought idolatry back into Judah He even sacrificed one of his own sons, burning him to death on the altar of Molech. He was wicked. And there were two kings to the north of him, one in the northern kingdom of Israel, one in the country of Syria. And these two kings didn't like Ahaz, so they they got together and they said, let's depose him. Let's kick him off the throne and we'll put a king in his place who will do what we want him to do. So when Ahaz finds out their plan, He makes an alliance with another nation, the nation of Assyria, and he goes to the king of Assyria, and he says, hey, uh, let's make an alliance. Um, These guys are trying to kick me off the throne, and because you're the big gun, you're Assyria, you can help me, you can protect me from them and take care of me. So he makes this alliance, and when he does, Isaiah, the prophet, comes to Ahaz, and he says, shame on you, essentially, Why why are you doing this? Why would you trust a king rather than the Lord, your king? Why wouldn't you just trust God for protection? And he rebukes him. Isaiah rebukes King Ahaz for making a human alliance and not trusting in the Lord. And later on, Isaiah comes back to him a second time, and he wants to assure King Ahaz that God would make sure that those two kings in the north that want to depose him, that they won't have their way and that God would protect Judah and the royal seat. Well, Ahaz doesn't listen. He he doesn't want to have anything to do with Isaiah. Isaiah says, Ahaz, listen, ask God for a sign. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. So Isaiah says, well, God's going to give you one anyway. Here it is. You ready for the sign? Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, you might be thinking, well, what kind of sign is that to a, to a king of Israel, especially about a boy who wouldn't be born for 600 years? Well, first of all, when Isaiah said, God will give you a sign, that word you in Hebrew is plural. So it's not just you, the king, but you, the nation, the entire nation of Israel. It's a sign to the nation. The idea being that God is going to protect his interest in the lineage of King David. He's going to make sure that he fulfills his promise, and the promise would be fulfilled in the virgin-born Emmanuel. Now, around this same time, another sign was given to and through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord said, Isaiah, you're going to have a son, but before your son is even weaned, those two nations in the north, they're going to be forsaken. And sure enough, before his little boy was three years old, those two kings that were threatening the kingdom of Judah, they died. The signs were the same, even as, uh, even as Isaiah's son was the proof and the prediction that God would ensure the future of the royal seat of David. But the ultimate fulfillment would come 600 years later when the virgin-born son of God would be the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the fulfilled Messiah. So that's, that's the overall context of this, the promise that we read here in Isaiah chapter 7. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now there's something else I want to address uh, here. There are some liberal scholars who like to point out that what they see is a problem in the text here in Isaiah 7. Because in English, the text says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. The Hebrew word for virgin is Alma, uh, A-L-M-A-H, which can be translated as either virgin or as a young woman. And liberal scholars will say, well, Alma doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. It simply means a young lady, not a virgin. And Isaiah was simply saying that a young woman would give birth, not a virgin. While the near fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy may have reference to a young woman, Giving birth, the far or the ultimate fulfillment clearly points to a woman miraculously conceiving and giving birth. And this is especially clear because the Old Testament never uses that word in context other than what we refer to as a virgin. And whenever I hear that reasoning, my immediate question is, how would that be a sign to anyone? A young woman having a child, that happens all the time. That happens every day. That's no sign. No, the sign is a virgin having a baby. That's a sign. That didn't happen every day. It's never happened before, and it's never happened since. And also, when the liberal scholar says that that could mean a young woman, they have a huge problem because when their translators in, the, uh, in Alexandria, Egypt, of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament when they translated from Hebrew into Greek, they made the translation of that word Alma in Isaiah 7. They chose a Greek word, Parthenos. Behold, a Parthenos will have a son. And in Greek, it can only mean one thing, a virgin, not a young woman, always a virgin. So they understood the meaning of the word and they translated it way before Jesus was ever born as Parthenos, a virgin born child. So there's no getting around the virgin birth. It is a cardinal doctrine in the church. It's one of the creeds in the church that we've believed in Uh, from the beginning part of the Apostles' Creed. I believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So the virgin birth brought forth the son. Joseph was told by the angel, and so he named his son Jesus. One last thing. It wasn't just Isaiah that predicted the virgin birth? I believe it was predicted in Genesis chapter 3, where we see a reference to the seed of the woman. In Genesis 3 verse 15, it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now you're thinking, the seed of of the woman, that's not right. I mean, We know biologically as well as theologically that the seed doesn't come from the woman, but from the man. So when he talks about the seed of the woman, we have something very unique. Mary was the only woman who had within her the seed that would produce a child that did not come from a man, but from the Holy Spirit. So I believe that the virgin birth was predicted even all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Jesus Christ was the only person who existed before he was born. Just think about that for a while. He existed before he was born. He existed from all eternity as the second person of the Trinity. And he exi- so he existed in eternity past as the eternal Son of God. But for a time, he was placed on this earth in the virgin womb of a young woman named Mary and conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to wrap your head around. So that's the message delivered to Joseph from the messenger. So we've looked at the man. We've looked at the messenger. Now let's look at the marriage in verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph did what the angel commanded him to do. He obeyed. Joseph obeyed. He didn't doubt. He didn't talk back. He didn't waver in any way. He said, okay, if that's what God's doing here, that's what we'll do. He immediately understood the truth and the importance of the angelic messenger that came to him. I'm sure he didn't understand at all, but he did it. He followed through. He obeyed completely. And it says he did, not, he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Now the words there, did not know her till, that phrase implies that Joseph and Mary had normal marital relations after Jesus's birth. So Mary did not stay a virgin. She was a virgin when Jesus was born But after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had a normal sexual relationship, and they produced other children. So this verse denies the the teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's a doctrine that doesn't come from the Bible. It doesn't come from any early church tradition either. That came later on by one of the popes around 649 AD. Pope Martin uh, came up with that idea. So, that may be new to you, depending on your church background and the way that you understood that. But here's why. Later on in Matthew, there's a list of Jesus' brothers and his sisters. In Matthew, 15 verse, or Matthew 13, verse 54, it says, "...when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue..." So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So Jesus had four brothers that are named here. He has sisters, and he himself was born of the virgin. Here's the importance of this. The marriage between Joseph and and Mary was formally consummated, but not before the birth of Jesus. Joseph and Mary were married. They consummated their marriage, and they lived a normal married life, at least as normal as life could be when your eldest son is the Messiah, (laughs) if you can imagine that. And that's an important point that they, they were married. They fulfilled their marital obligations, and they, they lived a normal married life. And he called his name Jesus. God is salvation. They did what God told them to do. As difficult as it was, as an almost impossible situation as it seemed, they obeyed the Lord. They name him Jesus, and though a very common name, it had genuinely great meaning, and would come to be the greatest name, the name above all names, the name Jesus. That's, that's who we worship, a virgin-born king, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus. Let's pray together.